This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Narkarni. When we visit our doctors with aches or pains, we hope and expect to find relief. But for the millions of people who sustain arthritis, fully effective medicines don't yet exist. One particular type of arthritis is called post-trauma osteoarthritis, which occurs after a bone fracture or dislocation and is sustained by many who have been injured while being in the military. For that condition, pharmaceutical solutions have remained especially elusive, but an interdisciplinary team of scientists and physicians centered at New York University have developed what seems like a breakthrough using applications of material science. They have identified a polymer gel that holds promise in delivering effective medication to the arthritic joint with minimal invasion and maximum effectiveness. I'm speaking with one of the authors of that study, Jin Kim Montclair. She is a faculty member at the Tandon School of Engineering at New York University in New York City. Jin, welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. And thanks for taking the time to share your amazing research with our listeners and me. I'm really eager to hear and share the findings of your paper, which was published earlier this year in the journal Biomaterials. One thing I know is that arthritis seems to affect so many people. Uh, My own mom, my sister, and many of my friends sustain the aching joints and loss of mobility that arthritis brings. But I understand that there's more than one type of arthritis. And I was wondering if you could describe the type that you and your colleagues have been working on. Right. Um, So we've been working on post-traumatic osteoarthritis in which you have an injury and that causes the aches and pains that uh, people with arthritis have. And it's, it's a problem that is very hard to fix or at least alleviate. And so, um, so we were um, excited to, to, to publish this work because we think we have something super promising that would be helpful for many, many people who su- suffer from PTOA. That's fantastic. I know that this current treatment is to alleviate pain and stiffness, and, and there might be some you know, sort of drastic surgical uh, alternatives, but there's really no reversing the damage that happens with post-traumatic osteoarthritis. And I'm wondering if trying to find a cure for this particular ailment is what motivated you, or did your research on materials science really sort of indirectly lead you to this study? Right. It's, it's more of the latter for me. So, so my lab focuses on making materials, making, making new types of materials, but comprised of building blocks as proteins instead of like synthetic materials like polymers or, or metals. So, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so that's how it started. Um, and then my collaborator, who is, uh, who is focused on uh, PTOA and osteoarthritis and cartilage, um, he reached out to me and said he has this problem, and he thought that I would have a solution to help him with this problem. And that's how it all started. It's fantastic. You know, one of the things I really loved about your study was your team encompasses seven different academic science departments, including the engineering and medical schools at New York University. And I was wondering, how did you assemble this team and work together across these different disciplines? Right. Um, That's a great question. We are in New York, and I have lots of colleagues in different departments, and um, we 
like to connect to one another. And my colleague, CJ Liu, who is in the medical school, actually for the Hospital of Joint Diseases, was the one to reach out to me. He saw that we were working on engineering new types of materials, and he um, had this problem of which he, he had this therapeutic. His therapeutic is called Astrin. It's a protein therapeutic. And he found that he was able to treat and reverse some of the degradative properties after post-traumatic uh, osteoporosis. Well, after having uh, trauma um, and having PTOA happen. Tell us about Priya Katyal, the postdoctoral scholar who was the first author on the paper. How does her work fit in with this whole study? Right. So uh, Priya, she is the, she's the one who got us both together. Um, she actually learned not only the work that we do in our lab making protein materials, but also learned about PTOA and the disease. And it was really her efforts that led to getting all of us together into the room and, this, and, and putting our minds together so we can find the solution to the problem. Fantastic. And I noted in the acknowledgments that you thanked several graduate students for their input. And I'm, I'm always interested to learn, like, what are, what are emerging scientists, what are young scientists doing in such projects? What, what role did your graduate students play? Right. So, so my graduate students help in the process of either making the materials or even um, helping assess those materials, either through mechanical testing or any biological functional testing. So... So yeah, so they participate in those uh, parts of the work or helping those parts of the work and um, adding intellectual um, uh, thoughts and, and, and experiments to, to help move things in. I'm imagining that your lab is this incredibly busy, bustling place with all kinds of people doing fantastic things towards towards the end of solving problems. At Undisciplined, we'd love to think about how one scientific study almost always happens by one study building on the shoulders of another study. And I'm wondering, is there earlier work that provided the foundation for your study? Right. So so there's two. One is the work that uh, my collaborator, C.J. Liu, had done in which he developed this therapeutic. And so he, for a very long time, he was trying to identify something that could help um, in PTOA. And he did. And then on, on our end, we were just trying to make new types of materials. And our work has been built on um, others who have worked on trying to look at um, piecing together proteins and making proteins that can self-assemble. And so um, with that, uh, we came together and it was a marriage kind of made for, for, for making this happen, which was quite surprising and quite exciting. Yes, it does sound exciting. I'm wondering if you could describe or explain what this recombinant protein block polymer is and, and why is it so suited to the application of delivering an injectable compound to joints? Right. Uh, that's a great question. So, um, so recombinant protein block polymers are essentially, um, we make, we genetically engineer proteins of, and we take pieces from nature. So this, this, this protein block copolymer specifically is comprised of an elastin-like domain, which is in your tissues that make it elastic. And then there's a cartilage oligomeric matrix protein. It's a coiled-coil domain, which is just this kind of helical domain that can self-assemble. And that's um, also found in cartilage. And so we join these two uh, pieces together, and we found that they can self-assemble or they can come together and make these interesting um, gel-like materials. And um, specifically what was important, it was uh, an in solution, a solution at four degrees, 
But when we have it, the temperature increase to body temperature, it becomes a gel. And so this would be super perfect for, for generating a, a, an injectable gel so that there would be no need for invasive, invasive surgeries or anything of that sort. And so that, those are the material qualities that we, we identified that was super um, uh, key, at least key to making this happen, making an injectable material to deliver uh, CJ Liu's uh, Astrin therapeutic. I think it's incredible, as you described, that that it that it seems to function best at exact at at human body temperature. Exactly. Was that a surprise to you? Well, so right. So we had done these studies a, a while back when we were making them. We we made these different black copolymers, and we found that this specific one formed this gel. And we noted that it formed this gel at elevated temperatures and it happened to be body temperatures, which was perfect, at least for what yeah. we needed to do. So, so that happens so rarely. I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But we did, so that you know, we did a lot of um, very basic science um, studies where we made libraries of these protein complexes and we studied them and we studied their mechanical properties and their behaviors of going from liquid to gel. So so we've had this whole history of of, of studies that we had done, but the, the 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 this one was the perfect one that worked. You know, that is so interesting, Jen. Um, You know, so often when I read papers that describe, you know, here's our question, here's the methods, here's our results, here's the discussion, here's the next questions that follow, it always sounds like smooth sailing all the way. (laughs) But I think every scientific project I've worked on, um, you know, has its challenges and glitches and halts and dead ends. And, and, And you just described this sort of preliminary, you know, a tremendous amount of preliminary work that you and your colleagues had to do to find and identify this particular compound, you know, that would uh, be for this particular application. And I'm wondering if there were, you know, other challenges that you and your team faced that we might not be aware of if we just read your final paper in biomaterials. Right. So, so the first thing that we were really concerned about when we were, we, we came up with this idea, we said, okay, my lab, we have this interesting polymer, protein polymer that can do this and has this behavior. And then CJ had this therapeutic. And so then the first question we had was, well, when we combine these two, would it in, in continue to gel and would it uh, allow for sustained delivery of the therapeutic? Because that was the hypothesis that we were testing. And we didn't know that, yes, this would happen. We just hypothesized this would likely happen. And so testing that first was kind of the, the, the most, that was the most critical experiment to make sure that it, the gel would gel with the protein under those temperatures and that that gel will then deliver the protein in a sustained way. Because otherwise, then it would be the same as injecting the protein multiple times over, you know, over the lifetime. So, uh, so yeah, so, so, so that crucial experiment was done and then it worked. And so we were super excited. We're like, okay, this works. <laughs> now we can do all of these biological experiments, all of these other mechanical experiments, and then test what's going on and, and see whether indeed it, it, would, it would allow for its therapeutic effect in the way we had hypothesized. 
Well, could you um, encapsulate your findings? Like, what were your key findings that came out of this particular study? Right. So, so I think there there's several. First of all, is that we can indeed encapsulate the therapeutic and allow for sustained delivery of the therapeutic. And then in 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 vivo and in vitro, we can see that yes, it does actually um, impact. The, 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 the PTOA so that we see, yes, we're improving um, the, the cartilage so that it's not degrading. And, we're in, in, and in the case of delivering the um, therapeutic agent, we don't need to continuously deliver more and more, meaning we don't need to continuously inject um, and that would be a problem, <laughs> I think. <laughs> that, yes, <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so so it, so remarkably, we saw that yes, we were able to preserve the joints, and it seems to reverse some of the effects of degradation, which was um, really super cool and surprising to us. We didn't think it would work as good as we had hypothesized. Right. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> it was. It was. It was very, very um, uh, like exciting uh, when we. Got yes. You know, Jen, I know that you're a, a material science and you carry out basic research, but but are you and your colleagues aware of what it might take and, and maybe what is the time span to get your discovery in the basic material science um, into an actual therapeutic application? Right. So that's a great question. Yes. And in, in some like we, we have some sense, meaning we know that we need to get through FDA approval for these things. Right. So our, because our materials are biological They've, they've never been tested before, right? And, um, and so we would need to go through FDA approval to make sure that it's safe for, to be used in humans. We also would have to do some clinical trials. So all of the studies that we had done, um, the, the largest, uh, I guess, animal study we had done, the animal model was rabbit, right, in the system. But to, to actually have it useful for humans, we need to do clinical trials and do those types of experiments. And that would take some time. And so I, I suspect, you know, if we think about it, um, it would take about 10, 10 or so years, right, to go through those types of hurdles it, um, available to the public. If all of those benchmarks are passed, that is, if the clinical trials go well, FDA approves everything, and then um, we, can, we can have it out for the public. I see in the acknowledgments of your paper that your work was supported in part by a research grant from the Department of Defense, yeah. in addition to funding from NI, the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. And I'm wondering, what was the connection to the Department of Defense? Why why did they see fit to provide support for your work? Right. So, so in large part, because soldiers <laughs> um, under, have post-traumatic osteoarthritis, they, they are out in the field, they, they have their bodies damaged. And as such, they have uh, PTOA happening. And so um, to, to, to help their soldiers, they fund this type of research, which I'm you know, super glad that they do. So, um, so yeah, they were the predominant funders of the, the research that we completed. So in some ways, I could say that your work might apply to national security, which is you know, one of the uh, broader impacts that the National Science Foundation uh, would like scientists to think about. In fact, every study supported by the National Science Foundation has to think about the research impacts in society. So what were, were your broader impacts about this application to national security and the military, or, or did you have other impacts that might ensue from your work? 
Right. So, so there are multiple impacts, um, uh, predominantly right for, for the DOD, the department of defense, uh, security, as well as the soldiers, but also in general, right? So this can also be applied to osteoarthritis and health of human health, uh, other humans that are not suffering from some trauma induced uh, arthritis. This would also be beneficial as well. And then, I think broadly, just the training of scientists who are in the multidisciplinary fields, right? So Priya, as an example, she kind of um, was working in both our labs to to make this happen. And this was this is not a single discipline discipline that that was able to make this solution. So I think all of that are reasons. Got it. Fantastic. I also saw from your website sort of talking along the same lines of applications and training, I saw from your website that you participate in a very cool, very important program called SOAR, which brings material science to high school kids. Is that right? Could, could you tell us about that? Oh, that to me is very exciting. <laughs> right. So, so well, um, part of the reason why I, we do this, it's, uh, it's called scientific outreach um, and research. And um, I've done this in part because I grew up in, in, the, in, in New York, um, and I was encouraged by teachers to go into STEM fields. And so what we want to do is the same. We want to encourage young minds, diverse minds, to pursue STEM fields. And it's not only materials. It can be biology. It can be, you know, it can be a broad range of things. Just getting these kids excited about science and, and learning the lingo and then um, having those kids then become part of the new science uh, generation where, where their minds can then answer these hard, tough questions, right? Right. Well, that is a huge topic in science now, especially just in the last few years, um, as we've, you know, we've seen the need for more inclusiveness, more diversity, more equity in the scientific enterprise. So I think what you're doing with this SOAR program and probably other things you do are really congruent with those efforts. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how you know, in a larger sense, the scientific enterprise in which we work might become more inclusive in the future. Right. I, I think by having more people at the helm who are diverse will help also with inclusion as well. Just even in my lab, I look at the statistics of the, of the diversity in my lab versus maybe someone who's not as diverse as I am. Um, but there's, there's, there's a difference. And I think as we get more people through the pipe pipeline who are of diverse nature will be able to get those minds in and we can then change kind of the the makeup of who who are in stem fields right i think that sounds fantastic i love hearing you talk about this that you're both this amazing scientist you know at the top of her field but also really thinking about some of the social aspects of science that then translate into the intellectual aspects of science in the future so I'm really grateful that you're you're thinking about that and tuned into that. Um, I wanted to go back to your paper and just ask you a little bit about what might be some of the ripple effects of your study in your own field and maybe in other fields. Right. So um, that's a good question. I think in terms of ripple effects, I think thinking about some materials that are not synthetic, right? So our materials are comprised of amino acids, which are proteins, and we eat them all the time. Our our bodies are comprised of proteins to allow us to function. And so if you think about that type of material, if it degrades, it won't, it, it will naturally degrade and get used and recycled in your body. And it would let, less likely cause any type of immune response, right? So, so I think 
future fields of making materials will focus on these types of protein engineered or protein based materials. Fantastic. Yeah, um, as a, I, I'm a tropical biologist, I do tropical forest ecology, and I'm often I'm aware that very often we find compounds in nature that chemists and material scientists then create or recreate in the lab that, so that they can be manufactured. Right. And I'm wondering if it, was that the case at all with your polymer? That is, were you mimicking some naturally occurring compound, or did you sort of create this de novo? Right. So this is more of the latter, meaning we created it, uh, but we were using elements, like I had said, elastin-like polypeptides, which is elastic, and then cartilage oligomeric matrix protein, which is a, from cartilage. So these are found in nature, but we piece them in ways that, are, that, are, that nature hasn't even thought about so that we can make these artificial systems that are protein-based, but that can do all these things that nature hasn't been able to do like encapsulate a therapeutic and deliver it to a joint, for example. Right, right. And then you, you, you talked a little bit about immune responses, and I'm wondering about, you know, how, how does this fare in terms of evoking or not invoking uh, an immune response in the humans in which, you, in which you sort of tried this out? Right, so we, we haven't tried it out in humans, right? But we, so, but we have done it in at least the rabbit systems. And in, in, in the cases that we've done experimentally, they have not... Um, led to an immune response. However, in future, we will have to do these for humans, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, um, we will we will have to explore that. But it's less it's less likely, and we can re-engineer those proteins so that we can um, dampen those immune responses if needed as well. So, fantastic. Fantastic. What a brave new world we're in. <laughs> it's remarkable. Um, your paper has received just a, a huge amount of attention from both other scientists and also the media. Yeah. And I'm wondering whether you were surprised at, at how interested people would be in this work. Yeah, I, I, I was actually. I was, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was taken aback. I was like, oh my God. I, I know. I'm getting all of these I, calls and con- like people suffering from PTOA have contacted me, left me phone calls, emailed me, and you know asked me wow. if they can be in a clinical trial. And and and, <gasps> and I'm just blown away at how wow. there's been a response to this, which also leads me to believe that this is a need that we need to solve, right? So this is a good thing that we're doing this. Um, um, but literally, I was taken aback because we've done, we've been in the science, we've been doing engineering proteins and for therapeutics, et cetera, for, for quite some time. So um, having all of this response has been very surprising to, to, to me and my colleagues. So, yeah. Well, I think it's very well deserved, but I, I guess it is, it must feel peculiar. Like we've been doing this for decades. Why is it that right now this came out? But, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Jen, that people who have arthritis, you know, who suffer from the symptoms that seem to never go away and only get worse, I would imagine that any small flicker or flame of hope would be so important and so compelling in terms of wanting to support what you're doing to, to move it forward and to, to make it into an application that can be helpful. I can imagine that, that a lot of, you know, this is a compelling article for that. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think I, it, it, I'm, I'm, but I'm surprised. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I would be also, uh, that's great. Um, Jen, hearing you talk about your work this morning with such knowledge and enthusiasm, I'm wondering for our listeners, especially our younger listeners who might want to do the kinds of work that you're doing, what would be your advice to them? Oh, absolutely. I would encourage them, right. To, to, 
to encourage their interest. Um, if you like things like this, reach out to laboratories doing these types of research. You know, I'm always seeking students and talent, et cetera. There are many people, not only me, doing this type of research. And we need your young minds. So, so keep on at it because uh, the solution is in there and, and, and it's in those minds, I believe, because um, I, I, think, I think, you know, having the diverse minds out there come and, and come to the playing field in STEM will help solve lots and lots of problems, not only this problem. Fantastic. I love hearing that. And I hope all our listeners will take that into account as they think about their own futures and how they might contribute to both science and society. Um, Jin, I know that you're already an expert in, in multiple disciplines, and I'm and I have interest in lots of areas, but I'm wondering what area you foresee you'll be working on next. Right. That's a that's an important question. While we looked at PTOA, we're also looking at cancers as well, right? We're looking at trying to uh, deliver therapeutic agents directly to cancers or tumors. And we want to also be able to visualize them, right? So non-invasively seeing it while doing therapy, I think is the forefront of the future. And then also, we're interested in conducting, right? So making these proteins be able to conduct electricity. So then, then you can interface them with kind of material, with uh, a biological materials as well. So, um, so there's a lot of things that are on in, in the horizon in terms of future work. Um, and it's all through proteins and engineering proteins to do really cool things. Well, Jin, you make me excited about it. I'm now going to, I think, hang up my spurs on tropical biology and come to New York and start working in your lab on all these important questions. Jin, thank you so much for sharing your insights on this fascinating piece of scientific research. We wish you and your colleagues the best for your work in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.